Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 377th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's older than magic and twice as dangerous. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I am your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host is Cliff Daigle, at Word of Commander on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello, everybody. I'm, as always, I'm looking forward to diving into this week's developments. But before we do, I want to remind everyone that this show is produced by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Please sign up today at MTGPrice.com to plan your specs, chat on an amazing Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. My friend, what is on our agenda this week? We have some awesome stuff lined up this week. We're going to lead off with our Metagame Week in Review. There's some new cool things going on that we get to talk about, both in Modern and in Pioneer. Segment 2 has our top movers of the week, including a card that might be familiar from last week. Segment 3 is our top movers online. Uh, Magic Online has some ridiculous percentage uh, offerings to be cashed in on. Segment 4 has cards to watch. You and I have some spicy picks. And Segment 5, we're going to tell our origin stories and how we got started in Magic Finance. Alrighty, let's kick things off with the metagame week in review over on the Modern Challenge Via Magic Online, May 19th, we kick, had the top deck as Blue-Red Murktide, Hardened Scales making a, another top 8 appearance on the back of three copies of the Ozlith, the Shattered Spire, Green Tron in 3rd, Blue-Red Murktide again in 4th, Red-White Burn in 5th, Blue-Red Murktide in 7th, and then 6th and 8th place were both near-identical versions of Omnath Elementals, one of them running three copies of Nissa Resurgent Animist, and the other running two copies, just depended on whether they had one or two copies of Elish Norn from uh, Mother of Machines uh, from recent standard sets. Omnath was a deck that was top tier, then seemed to fade to 1.5, maybe tier 2, and now with Nissa, it looks like it may be poised to come back to the, the top ranks of the format. I mean, this deck is a beautiful, beautiful thing. First of all, Elish Norn is doubling up your triggers and preventing your opponent's triggers. That's already pretty amazing. But you add in Nyssa, like Nyssa plus Elish Norn, you just want to curl up into a little ball and die. They're getting the double landfall and mana trigger. And then when the fetch land brings something else in, now they get to go find two elementals. Yeah. And then you get an extra, so you get uh, two, You're gonna, if you had Elish Norn and a fetch land, that's going to get you four mana and the next two elementals. And in, in this case, you're either hitting Risen Reef, Omnath, Solitude, Fury, or Endurance, none of which are, are likely to be good for you. I think you can hit a, another copy of Nyssa as well, since she is an elf. And I see Titania. An I see a Titania Protector yes. of Argoth in here, and I can't... That's an elemental, actually. Yeah, so <laughs> none, of those are, none of those are good for you. None, none of those are good for you. And then they've rounded out with a couple of copies of Eladomri's Call. They have Teferi Time Raveler. 
so that they can pre- protect their action on their turn. They have run-in six, so they, they can recycle early fetch lands and pick off ragavans, and then prismatic ending as a catch-all solution to anything the format wants to throw at them. I've seen four or five different uh, builds revolving around Nissa just in Modern alone on streams th- over the last week. So it looks like more than a flash in a pan. I, I think that Nissa is very likely to post up as a one of the more played three drops in the format. Let's see if it does anything to uh, Aftermath, because right now Aftermath is on just like fire, junk, get it out of my house. It is corrupting my very soul level pricing. Yeah, because I think that vendors took it on assuming that the first time they tried like something like this, it would be an absolute home run. And the funny thing is, I, I don't think that the density of good cards in the set is actually low. I just think that the the formulation of the set is awkward. It's, you know, 50 cards, so you get a whole bunch of variants of the bad cards, which are bad opens. If you open either version of the sealed product and you pull a couple of Nisses, you're doing excellent. And if you've got a, a Calyx or a, or a Sarkin or something as well, you're probably not doing too bad. But if you hit a bunch of none of the top five cards, then you're going to be in some trouble for sure. And the, the variance is a, a real beast on this one. It's true. Yeah. So uh, moving on over to the Pioneer Challenge, we've got an up-and-coming deck just coming out of nowhere. First and second place were taken down by a red-white aggro convoke deck. This is four copies of Reckless Bushwhacker, four Thraben Inspector, four Ornithopter, four Venerated Loxodon. That's the 4-4 convoke creature from back in Ravnica block. That says when it enters the battlefield, put a plus one plus one counter on each creature that convoked it. So that's why you see ornithopters in here is because they want to leverage these convoke spells to get everything big in a hurry. They've got two giant killer, three clarion spirit, four Voldaren epicure, three resolute reinforcements, and four knight errant of Eos, a card I've been very happy with in my Saint Traft EDH deck that I've been running lately. This is another beautiful, beautiful deck. It's got uh, four Forbidden Friendship that's uh, one in a red to make a 1-1 dinosaur with haste and a 1-1 human soldier. An Ikoria draft uh, common of note. Yeah. And then you're on Gleeful Demolition to let you destroy target artifact. And if you controlled it, make three 1-1 Frexian Goblin tokens. Uh, This does not have the uh, indestructible... Uh, artifact land so nobody's trying to do that they are really just trying to sack either the thraven inspector's token or the ornithopter and that would appear to oh or the voldaren epicure token so you've got 12 solid targets they have a bunch of good targets on the other side of the table too though if they need to kill artifacts like uh the bank buster in the black red deck the, sure. the vehicle that is ever present in in the black red bills is, is a solid i would imagine that like 80% of the cast of this went to their own stuff, though, because you want those three goblins real bad. If you've got the setup, but there's not that many artifacts in the deck. I guess they've got the Voldaire and Epicures as well to, to, yeah, to you've create got the blood tokens. 12 hits for that. Yeah. So it's not bad. You're good. So, yeah, this is this is probably real cute when they kill you on turn four, turn three or four out of nowhere. So, if you do the full convoke on Knight Errant, look at the top six cards, reveal two creature cards with mana value X or less from among them where X is the number of creatures that convoked it. So you can Knight Errant for the full five and find, like, a Venerated and another Knight Errant. That's hot. That's real hot. Yeah, I mean, this is a Reckless Bushwhacker deck, so it's got eight-whack kind of kind of vibes to it. And, you know, we, this is 
this deck basically didn't exist last week, and it was first and second at a challenge this weekend. So that suggests an entirely new archetype on the rise. Absolutely worth keeping your eye on. And in terms of uh, affected cards, on Magic Online, we're going to see shortly that Inspiring Vantage and Reckless Bushwhacker were both uh, climbing, and there's a chance that I think Vantage could see some pressure uh, on the back of this deck if it continues to do well. Certainly Knight Errant of Eos, Extended Arts or Foil Extended Arts or even regular copies could could see some pressure here as well. Other than that, there's not a whole lot in this deck other than the Mana Confluence that was already soaring, and I expect that's going to get a reprint in Commander Masters. That's real likely. I've been selling through my Pride versions of it, and I'm, I'm feeling good about that. I do love a uh, a deck that's randomly Gigantha as a companion, and the Regal Leosaur as a fun way to anthem your creatures for one red-white, uh, red-white. Red, white. Sure. Third place in the Spineer Challenge was Blue-White Control. Fairly standard list there. Blue-Red Control was in fourth, though. And this is a fairly unique list. This is not a creativity build. This is four Bonecrusher Giant, four Fable of the Mirror Breaker. No big surprise there. Four fire, Fiery Impulse, a Braid, Spike Field Hazards, Behold the Multiverse, four copies. Four divide by, divide by zero, two galvanic iteration. Keep in mind, divide by zero was banned in standard, if I'm not mistaken. Four, yes. four make disappear, two Chandra Hope's Beacon, two Anger of the Gods, and two Elrin's Epiphany. Nothing better than casting an Elrin's Epiphany into a Chandra, Chandra Hope's Beacon, doubling the spell up, taking two extra turns, and making four birds for your trouble. God bless. Chandra's Hope's Beacon, we're going to talk about in a minute, but that's a card uh, that I wrote about and others have been playing. And it's just going to keep showing up in a lot of places. So yeah, this is just kind of a classic blue-red control shell. We also have black-red mid-range making its usual appearance in fifth. We have a Yorion Fires build with three different invasions in sixth. I think the invasions in question were one invasion of Alara and two invasion of Tolvada. Uh, there's also four Transmogrify in that deck. And a whole bunch of relevant staples in the format. Attracts a Grand Unifier, Essica's Chariot, Fable of the Mirror Breaker, Leyline Binding, all as four ofs, uh, except attracts, attracts at three copies. And then we have a Black Red Midrange deck again in eighth. And then even more spice for the week. Seventh place list in this tournament was a Mono Black Waste Knot build. Running four copies of Waste Knot. This is the enchantment for one and a black. Whenever an opponent discards a creature card, create a 2-2 zombie. Whenever an opponent discards a land, add two black to your mana pool. Whenever an opponent discards a non-creature, non-land card, draw a card. They're running one Turgrid, one Tenacious Underdog, four Shieldred the Apocalypse, one Meat Hook Massacre, four Fatal Push, one Cling to Dust, two Power Word Kill, one March of Wretched Sorrow, two Shieldred's Edict. Four Liliana of the Veil, four Thought Seize, one Duress, two Inscription of Ruin, two Go Blank, and one Invoke Despair. Alongside four Castle Lockthwain, two Urborg, three Gyro Reach Sanitarium, and two Hive of the Eye Tyrant. Very classic mono black control vibes there. It is awesome. This is an amazing deck. I would I would love to see what people were saying as you land the Turgrid God of Fright. I imagine. You're playing it for the flip side with the uh, the lantern that makes everybody want to cry. Yeah, I've tried that on but, on Arena before. Yeah, so this is this is beautiful because if you go like you're starting off with a duress or a thought seize, you're going into oh heaven forbid you go thought seize waste not Liliana the veil. Just get ready and uh, strap on because it's about to get ugly. Yep, yep. 
Moving on over to top papers, movers of the week. Kick things off with Traverse the Ilvenwald out of Shadows Over Innistrad, a card that I'm sure has been called on this cast at least once or twice along along the way. Going 5 to $7, just regular copies on the back of that Sultai Shadow deck in Modern that is using Invasion of Ikoria and Death Shadow to reinvigorate that archetype. Chandra Hope's Beacon, the aforementioned borderless copies going $7 to $10 in non-foil on the back of Strong Standard and Pioneer play, and I'm guessing it will see plenty of EDH play as well. Magma Opus is a yeah. centerpiece mythic, usually a four of, in the Pioneer Creativity builds going uh, $6 to $9. I don't think it was foils. I think it was the non-foils that made that move. Just adjusting the sheet as we go here. And we also have Sarkin Soul of Flame showcase out of uh, Aftermath going 10 to 15, along with Sigarda Font of Blessings going 5 to 8, Calyx Guided by Fate showcase 10 to 25. This is all the non-foils that we're talking about here. So I think what we've got going on here is people have realized that the listings for non-foils weren't particularly deep, which is a signal that vendors, if they were cracking any Aftermath, were cracking the collector boosters, probably looking for fancy copies of Nyssa. But the regular booster boxes are going unopened for the for uh, by and large. And as a result, the key mythics of the set are in relatively short supply for non-foil. Yeah, because you can't get non-foils in collector boosters. So you have to open, they called epilogue boosters, which uh, means that they have to make sure that the, the quantity is there. And as you know, we see cards go up in value, we may see people going back to this well and saying, well, the like we were talking about a moment ago, the, the variance can be super high, but as more of these cards go up and down... It might not be that bad after all. That wasn't the end of the action on these Aftermath special cards either. We also have uh, Arnie Metalbrow Halo Foils going 5 to $11. That's the sneak attack-esque card that looks like it's real good in the Ur-Dragon. And we also have Rocco Street Chef Halo Foil and Dranith Ruins Halo Foil. Those are both rare Halo Foils, if I'm not mistaken, going 350 to 12 in the case of Rocco and 6 to 35 in the case of Dranith Ruins. That's the land that lets you pump up non-creature, uh, sorry, non-human creatures as they come into play. Yes, they're, these are all good cards and they are difficult drops to have show up for you. So it makes a lot of sense that these would be uh, things that got targeted early, especially with, you know, like we're talking about the small number of cards that got small number of packs that are getting opened right we also have cage sun surge foil which was your pick from last week going five to ten we're going to blame that one on the pro traders and warn people to keep their eye on whether it holds the plateau or not certainly if you can get if you got in at five or before then and you can flip in the 10 to 15 dollar range you'll be perfectly happy with that result yeah i called it to go 12 and there isn't a copy let's see there's Currently, one, two, three, four, five, six copies under six vendors under ten. One of those people has seven copies at six dollars. So uh, our pro traders had a great time just buying a whole bunch of it, and we'll see if they do something similar to our picks this week. Graveyard Trespasser Silver Screen Foils at a double feature, eighteen to thirty. That's sixty-seven percent gains on the back of its constant use in Black Red Pioneer. 
And we've talked before about how silver screen foils are one of the several high-end treatments that are in relatively short supply, given the opening patterns of that set in particular. Yeah, Double Feature was a cool experiment that didn't quite pan out, but it does give us some pretty sweet foils to go for, and I enjoy the few ones that I have in assorted decks. Over on Magic Online, we had uh, significant movement on Invasion of Ikoria out of uh, March of the Machine, 2.3 ticks to 5.4 on the back of Strong Pioneer and Modern Play, leading to 140% gains. We talked about that red-white aggro deck a little earlier, and Inspiring Vantage went 2.18 ticks to 7.83. If you've had some of those sitting around in your account, probably the week you want to exit on those. Red-white Convoke in Pioneer being the culprit. Reckless Bushwhacker, of course, went 1.5 ticks to 7.35. That's 383% gains. And if you drafted during Kaladesh block, you probably got this stuff sitting around. So go ahead and cash it out so you can do some free drafts. Wrapping up the Magic Online movers, we got Invasion of Gobacon on the back of Strong, Standard, and Pioneer play. 2.2 ticks to 13 ticks. And that's a rare, not a mythic. So that's very impressive. We'll see if he can hold it because that's a huge, huge bump. But a lot of people wanted to have it. And this is the one that lets you slow down their card for uh, two more mana, right? Uh, and then I think it flips into your creatures get plus... No, you get to you can sack it to make your creatures indestructible, something like that. Yes. You. Uh, so if a creature attacked, put a 1-1 one, one counter on it at the beginning of your end step, and you sacrifice it to give your creatures hexproof and indestructible until end of turn. And it's only it only requires three damage to flip. Yeah, which is not too tough if you're playing an aggro deck. Moving on over to cards to watch, I'm going to kick things off with a relatively obvious one, and the only question, I think, is whether or not we're early here. And the card I'm talking about, of course, is Atraxa Praetor's Voice in Halo Foil. Atraxa has made me money time and again. Every time they create a reprint, people say that she's been printed too many times, and this time she's not going to bounce back, and indeed, that may well be the case with this version or some other. These start at about $180 on TCG Player, but you can currently get them for less than $60. So I think there is a obvious entry point available now. If you want to be patient, you might get them down to $55, maybe $50. I think $45 would be getting kind of ambitious, given that we're talking about Halo Foils here. Uh, there are 61 listings currently on TCG Player. No huge walls anywhere. I think the, the biggest holding on here is six copies at posted at $63 a copy. And bottom line is that Atraxa has been for ages and looks like it will continue to be the number one commander of all time. And as a result of that, and it it's myriad interactions with a whole bunch of different mechanics, I would say that you're probably pretty safe to, to fire off a handful of these in the $55 range and then wait another month and see which direction it starts heading. My only concern, and otherwise you're completely right about everything you said, is that uh, I've got some Halo foils. I don't know if you've picked up any yet for anything in your decks. This one is the same frame with just a different foiling as the uh, Secret Lair version. And we're getting into what people like better. And that's that can be a hard thing to predict. However, the supply on these is so dinky that... Uh, I feel like, th- as a mythic, this is something that people should be ready to pounce on. 
I don't know how much lower it's going to go, but if it does, I see that there was one, there's lightly played foils that have sold for near 50. I think I'd be focusing on the near mints. Personally, I prefer the art from Double Masters, the borderless art. Okay, all right. Interestingly there, those are still going for 90 or so for non-foils and 120 for foils. And they actually have sold several copies each um, during this month, despite all the new attractions that have, have made an appearance. So I think personal preference is certainly uh, worth paying attention to. I think that the Secret Layer art, which has kind of stalled out around $50 or so, is worse than the showcase from MUL. I think the original art is better than both of those. But Halo Foil is probably going to continue to be used. Wizard seems committed to that for the time being, given that we just saw it again in Aftermath, and we're probably going to see it in uh, forthcoming sets as well. And as a result, given that it's Atraxa, and they've given us a whole bunch of versions of her, they'll probably leave her alone for another year or two, and that is sufficient time for the best commander of all time to rebound in its rarest form from the most recent release. So if you feel like if you feel like being patient to see if you can get another squeeze another five or ten dollars out of your entry point here, I couldn't fault you at all. But I would definitely have this on your watch list so that if it starts moving in the upward direction, you'll know to jump on in. I'd be surprised if it dropped ten, maybe five, I'll give you. I agree with you. These Halo foils are beautiful and swirly. I dig them. All right. How about your first selection? Speaking of Halo foils. I was about to say, on the subject of Halo foils, can I interest you in some training grounds in Halo foil? They're a rare in the Eldraine showcase frame here in uh, Aftermath, and you can get them for around 24 bucks. And before it was reprinted, this was a card going for more than 40 So it's taken a big hit. And this is the most premium version. I'm going to let the regular versions of Training Grounds, the non-foils and the, the more basic ones, I'm going to let those keep heading downward. Those are on a lovely trajectory. I'm going to like getting in on that pretty soon. But the Halo foils at 24 bucks seem like a no-brainer. There's only 26 vendors on TCG. There's no big walls. This is the only premium version that you can really get. Um, we haven't really talked about it, but... Given the math of the distribution of things, if Halo foils are one in six of every copy and the rest, the other five in six, are showcase foil, they're traditional foil, so the Halo foil should be five times more expensive as it's five times more rare. This is only three times as rare, and it's already in 28,000 EDH rec decks, so this feels like a card that you should definitely grab a copy for whatever you're playing, and... I'm probably going to buy one pretty soon just for whatever deck I end up building that needs it. One of the issues I have here is though it's reported in 23,000 decks total since its original release many moons ago, it's only 2% of all blue decks and was almost is almost certainly destined to be very cheap in in its regular non-foil release for Aftermath. The other, con- yes. the other concern I have is that looking at the top 25 commanders, there are relatively few that could make a good case for having this as an inclusion in the deck. Thrasios is currently the 12th most built commander of the month. It's an auto-include there for sure, given his core ability. And then you'd probably be thinking something like Kenrith can run it to make all Kenrith's abilities cheaper. That's the 15th most built commander right now. 
And then in 21st position, we have Yuriko. So you could make your ninjutsu cost cheaper, if I'm not mistaken. And Oh, geez. Does that work? It lowers ninjutsu costs? My God. They're creature abilities, right? Uh, yes. I believe it's activated abilities. Huh. But other than those three, there's no, but there's no other decks, really, that, that are likely to run it. Now, keep in mind that the long tail of Commander is much more massive than people might realize. Right, like if you take the top twenty-five commanders versus all the other commanders, all the other commanders are still getting built to some total way more than the top twenty-five, um, because there's so many hundreds of options at this point. However, I'm not super confident in a fancy training grounds. That said, <laughs> can't ignore the fact that Halo foils have been targeted all week. This might well be one of the next ones to get pushed up just on the back of the Halo Foils being relatively hard to pull out of the Aftermath CBs and relatively few of those being cracked and bought. And as a result, I will not be at all surprised if we're here talking about this next week as something that went 25 to 38 or something on the back of this conversation, where we, o- <laughs> we only really need to have 10, 15 copies bitten off on TCG Player and not replaced before we would be at that level. As this product gets cheaper or stays cheap, we're presuming it stays cheap. Uh, the backfill can happen. People are going to say like, oh my God, let's go open these now that there's so many more good hits for it. And maybe the number of copies will go up, but there only being 26 copies, that shows even as a rare that there aren't that many Halo foils getting opened. And certainly nobody has them in any notable quantity. At present. I mean, I think, th- I think there's a quick flip position here for sure, especially if you operate on TCG Direct. I'm not as confident if you're operating on a more lackadaisical timeline or if you're like me where you're buying stuff, pulling it in once a month or so and then putting it up for sale. If you're if you're operating on a longer time frame, you're probably going to get caught in a backfill pattern here because they printed plenty of aftermath and they pr- printed print printed plenty of aftermath collector boosters. So, until I hear word that they've destroyed a bunch of it, uh, a lot of this stuff is going to be pretty risky in the midterm, especially when the hype cycle moves relatively quickly here onto Lord of the Rings, which I think we have previews on two weeks or so from now. The set releases in uh, June 23rd. so One month from, t- from uh, pre- tomorrow. Yeah, pre-releases the 16th. Uh, the debut will be May 30th, which is a week from tomorrow. Whatever heck debut means. Debut? Debut. Listen, man. It's French. I've uh, Sure. The debut. Yeah, it's like it's like when a girl in the south goes to her first like pageant or whatever. It's a debut. She's a debutante. <laughs> yeah, and she's being debuted. Oh my god, I don't want to have this discussion <laughs> with anybody who says a boot. <laughs> All right, so we've talked about we talked about it. We've talked about a track, so we've talked about training grounds. Uh, I'm gonna go at pick another one where you could easily be early, and it, and it may well be wise to wait. But I like where things are headed with a tally primal conqueror. Every single time I see this thing get cast, it just does absolutely silly things that every commander player that's done it once will be addicted to doing again. I'm not a huge fan of the showcase frame they picked for the Ixalons. We, ta- we already talked about how the the coin is not yeah, the medallion. doesn't really show off the monsters of Ixalan all that well. But it's still a handsome looking frame, and you can currently get these foils. They, they started around $50 on TCG Player. Relatively quickly on opening weekend got down into the like $10 to $15 range, and now you can get them 
off a rebound of four, four and a half dollars or so at about six and a half dollars. So it's on an upward trajectory for the last little while, and I would not be surprised to see that continue at a slow, steady pace as Commander players add this to every red deck of relevance. Nice thing about this card is if you're reanimating it and stuff, you're getting super bonuses off of it. But even if you're just casting it honestly, it's it's still going to do an amazing amount of work. It's a must-answer threat. And if you flip it to the backside, it starts killing people with one-shots. And I think people love big, silly dinosaurs. Foils showcases are currently around five to seven dollars depending on where you're snapping them off if you want to be patient and wait on these and hope that the, they're going to get weaker as the hype machine moves on throughout the summer on the two major sets that are releasing by all means do so but i suspect somewhere in the next six months you're going to want to find your entry point because i given that we're headed to ixalan this could easily get some additional pressure. Like maybe it ends up being a four of in standard because there's enough dinosaur cost reducers that this thing can be cast on turn four or five. And if that kind of thing goes down or it starts showing up in a pioneer list somehow as part of a reanimation package uh, that goes beyond Atraxa, then it could get additional pressure. It's in nine and a half thousand decks on EDH Rexafar. It's the number five card from Mom on that site. And yeah, I, I will not at all be surprised if this is a $15 card in 18 months or so. I agree with you. It, it could well be $15, but as you accurately pointed out, this is early to be moving in on a card. That's a, that's a rare that we're still opening. So, I mean, I, I see where you're, I, I would normally say that, but it, it's up $3 from its low. It's on an upward trajectory. I I see that as well, and I it's not getting any standard play yet. Um, so that's all Commander demand. So yeah, that's all Commander. That's all people who are just like, big giant dinosaur. The great thing about an Atali deck is if you build Atali as your Commander, you just fill it with lands and mana rocks, because all your cool stuff is going to come every time you cast your Commander. I, I think it actually, I, I just looked it up on Goldfish. I think there is actually a decent, like there has been a smattering of standard play, but I, I don't think it's core to the format at the moment. Well, if this uh, reanimator decks take off, this is a really fun target to reanimate. Indeed, this this is a really good time. I've I've played around with this. This and Atraxa make reanimation really, really, really cute. I yeah no, I, I agree that it's on an upward trajectory. I agree that I wish the frame did something cooler. But then again, if it's already like a giant dinosaur in its regular form, you want to show something, you know, uh, in this interesting medallion form it is held back you have to be something in commander it has to be red green you can't just be red so you're just going to toss this into as your commander in whatever deck you want to do i see you i see it's, you i probably wouldn't buy any yet but i don't I, I can't fault anybody who wants to move in so as a, I mean if we're going to do the color analysis we can also take a look at which commanders might be capable of running this you've got omnath ur dragon it's Ur Dragon is thematically weak, but probably still fits with a bunch of the other stuff going on in those builds. Ditto with Miriam. The Gishath will certainly run it. That's the ninth most built commander. Uh, Joe to the Unifier, yeah. I run it. It's good there. Shalai and Halar could, but it's not It's not part of the, the, the aggro theme of that deck. And it's also the 16th most built commander itself right now. So just it's... Right, you know, the desire for people to own a copy, a fancy-looking copy as their commander, will will add some benefit 
as we saw prior with Prosper Tome Band, which was a, a, a similar kind of thing for a while. Uh, Slimefoot and Squee could certainly make an argument for running it. Essica, God of the Tree, could run it. Corvold, uh, I have a copy. And that takes us to about the top 25. So there's probably eight, maybe ten commanders that can can run the card. Certainly more than would be d- interested in training grounds. Okay, I'll give you that. Okay, what about your last selection this week? My last selection this week is a card I mentioned in an article when we first got a preview of Lord of the Rings and we saw Tom Bombadil, the legendary god bard who cares about sagas and allows you to trigger sagas over and over again. Uh, There were a bunch of specs I mentioned in there. One of them went up a little bit when Tom was was previewed and is still pretty available for a very reasonable price, though it is not as cheap as it once was. I'm talking about Historian's Saga. I'm sorry, Historian's Boon, three and a white enchantment from Commander Dominary United. It is available in full, excuse me, foil extended art. So it's three and a white. Whenever it or another non-token enchantment enters your battlefield, create a one-one white soldier. There's clearly better versions of that. You can have what's its face, the Sigil of the Empty Throne. But whenever the final chapter of a saga you control triggers. Create a 4-4 white angel creature token with flying and vigilance. And since Tom wants to trigger things over and over again and let you move saga counters around, and the deck will presumably be full of ways to do that, this card's about to have a day in the sun. Right now you can get foil copies for around a buck, a little bit more, $1.25-ish. I bought 15 at around a dollar when I first wrote the piece. There's 112 vendors on TCG Player but not as many with huge walls as you might think. There's one person with a wall at 22 copies for four bucks a piece, somebody else with 13 at five. And this is a card that I'm picking to go $1 to $5. Just a very straightforward buy list play. I'm planning on selling my copies for hopefully two to $3 all at once instead of going piecemeal on little cards like that. Every time I play Divine Visitation in St. Traft, uh, people groan and then make their plans to get rid of it because everybody knows that an enchantment that continues to make 4-4 four, four angels and commander is not sustainable uh, if you want to survive. I like how you say get rid of it instead of saying get rid of you. That's a that's a very important distinction that they make. They often have to get ri- through the angels before they can do that. <laughs> they, that's also true. But they, you know, they may burn a point removal or a, a druid of purification or something to get rid of somebody's rhystic study and your historian's boon and whatever. So I can see this making sense in the context of a, you know, this is one of Tom's threats because it's not clear in that deck. And by the way, I'm not super convinced that Tom is going to be a a major priority build for a lot of commander players, but we'll see when we get there. The thing with the deck is that, uh, because I think Sloan built it when it was announced and played against it, against us with it a couple of times, and it didn't have a super clear endgame. So I think cards like this will be essential in the deck because the deck wants to get to a point where it's creating overwhelming threats, and that doesn't automatically come off of the text of its commander. So you have to have some way to leverage the manipulation of the sagas to get there. Now, it can be something like the Kiora thing making giant 8-8 Kraken tokens or whatever. It can also be something like Historian's Boon making a bunch of flyers. And... uh, I think that you're ultimately you need people to notice this card, and so what you're hoping for is that Command Zone lists it as a key upgrade for the deck when they cover it, and then you should see a flurry of activity as a result. 
yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, and the the fun thing is with Tom and and all the stuff that we're going to see is that uh, when because of the way they worded the ability to resolve the last chapter of a saga, all you need from this is the trigger. Once it triggers, then you can remove a counter, and then you can next turn get the trigger again. So there's this awesome like sub game that you're playing where you want all the ways to remove counters at instant speed and it's amazing for you so i i think that is going to happen and i agree that tom needs an end game this is indeed his end game all right let's move on over to our weekly topic we're going to talk about our origin stories in this game i think that Long-time listeners have certainly heard bits and pieces, I think, at least from my background, uh, but I don't think, they, don't think they've ever heard much about yours. And I want to go way back. Let's, let's kick things off with your actual start in the game. Do you remember your first encounter with Magic the Gathering? Yes. I remember my first PAX. Okay, so this was the Christmas of 2014. And my stepmother, I believe, bought my brother and I each a couple of packs of what I'm pretty sure was revised. But given, yeah, yeah, the end of 2014. I'm oh, sorry, 1994. I said 2014. I was, I was, I was going to say, I was like, 2014, there's no way. No, nah, man. Time, That's when you got in. Time is a flat circle. No, it was 94. So there was the... And keep in mind, there are like 20-year-olds listening to this that are like 1994. 1994. That's like when our parents in the 80s used to talk about the 50s, my yeah, friend. Yeah, no, I've, I've done that to people and said, Back to the Future, if you did it now, is about talking about the 1990s. So Yeah, it's crazy. It is crazy. So yeah, we got a couple of booster packs uh, for Christmas. And so, you know, it came with like two or three lands. We had to immediately go buy more packs. And we didn't understand the rules. Wall of Stone was the best because we could it could block three or four times before it took eight damage. So we were like at that level of understanding. And then we kind of petered out for about a month. And then I found the group of Magic players. This was my 10th grade year. I found the Magic players at my high school. And I just became voracious. And I went nuts. And I was going to uh, shout out to those who remember in Burbank in the mid-90s, The Last Grenadier, a store that I don't know if it still exists. I haven't been around there in a long time. But they were open much too late for a 15-year-old boy. And it was wild. They hated magic. They were tabletop D&D players all the way through. And they hated magic, which was really hilarious at the time. But I played Magic pretty much straight through high school and then even more in community college. And that took me to about 2000. And I I had my first real experience with Magic Finance. Uh, Around then, I had a, a 1984 Chevy Celebrity, big red car, called it the Red Baron. And it was while I was in community college. So I'd, I'd been trading, right? I, trading was a big, big thing. Everybody loved trading. We didn't, we had Scry magazine. So that was the only price guide we had. We had no idea about cards that were coming out. We couldn't do any of the tools we have for magic finance now. And what happened was that uh, I actually ended up trading for a Mox, uh, a Sapphire, kind of beat up. 
I traded an entire set of the book cards, like Arena, the Nalathani Dragon, the Mana Crypt. Uh, I don't remember what the other cards are. And 50 bucks to get a Mock Sapphire that was pretty beat up. Reckless Badger? Reckless Badger, yeah. I don't remember. I think there were four cards plus the Nalathani Dragon was the whole, like, cards that were never in booster packs experience. That you had to, you literally had to clip a piece of paper out of the back of the novel and send it in, if I'm not mistaken. First novel was Arena. The second one was Whispering Woods, I believe. And they were neat. I liked those books. And I damn sure sent those off. Yeah, because that was that was a big that was a big thing in the eighties and nineties that you you would clip something out, send it in, and they would send you something back in the mail. Yeah, remember the first uh, one of the first uh, promos they did with Ultra Pro about the Black Lotus in nine pieces. So yeah, there was right. there was collect it all, send it off. So I traded for this Mox, and I was just like overjoyed. It was a hundred dollar card at the time. I couldn't believe you know that I'd had this hundred dollar card, and we were playing. Uh, in my community college, and I built this extremely annoying deck. Now, we remember that we're still talking type 1 and type 1.5 and type 2 kind of stuff. So I had this deck that was just... Which, which for people that didn't play then, was basically vintage and then vintage minus all of the reserve list cards. Right. So I had this deck that was uh, green-blue. It was base blue. Its win conditions were a set of Mistress Factories in all four seasons. And it had two Rainbow Efreets, which is the three one for three and a blue flying. And for double blue, it phases out. So whatever was happening, I just phase it out and I wouldn't care. And everything else was counter spells, draw cards, and a playset of Gaia's Blessing off of four tropical islands in the deck. And then one day somebody said, Cliff, you've got this Mox in here. And the Mox is neat, but don't you want this? And they whipped out a Library of Alexandria at me. And my little control player heart grew three sizes that day because <laughs> it was a deck with like cap size and whispers of the muse, these six mana buyback spells that if they didn't do anything, if they didn't play cards into my counter spells, I was going to buy it back and just make them miserable. So Library of Alexandria fits right into that. So I traded the Mox for Library. I don't think it was a straight up trade. I don't remember what the distinctions were. So I had this ridiculous deck, Four Force of Will. Four Tropical Island, library in there. Uh, there was one Urtai for the other control player at my local area, and he started running Interdict. It was this whole arms race thing. But my first big exposure to finance was with that deck, because the Red Baron needed like $1,000 worth of work, a new transmission or something, and I needed it to get to work and everything. I didn't have it. I didn't feel like I could tap my parents or anything for it. So I sold... A uh, basically the whole deck. I sold a set of Force of Wills for a hundred something dollars. I sold a set of Tropical Islands for a hundred something dollars. I sold the library for I think two hundred if I remember right. And these are like nineteen ninety nine prices, so forgive me if I'm not remembering them accurately. But I came up with most of the money and I said to myself, Oh my god, this is amazing. I have just paid for my car repairs with these stupid pieces of cardboard. And I took a, a couple of years off when I, I, I went and got my actual degree and I started doing other things, but I kept coming back to Magic. I kept I would come back to Magic and find new places to play. And as stores in my area would open and close, I would always be trading. I did a whole lot of 
online trading starting in right before Holly was born. So 2012, 2013, that's when I was living in this podunk town in Central California that didn't really have a magic scene. But I started writing about magic in 2012 just because I wanted to. I had a little um, blogger thing going on. It still is up if you ever want to go find my blog spot. It's wordofcommander.blogspot. And I wrote like 9,000 words about how great Gatecrash was for Commander. And not too long after that, um, I saw a tweet about MTG Price looking for writers. And I sent in a year's worth of blogs I'd written. And they were like, cool, we'll start paying you about this. And then I started connecting with more of the community. And it's been pretty amazing since then. No matter where I've gone, I know where I'm going to start with new people. If I were to move, I know that I could go to basically anywhere that has a magic scene and start making new friends. It's been a big part of my life for that exact reason. And I've sold cards repeatedly for a number of different things. I have sold cards... Let me think. I haven't done it for car repair. I sold a Kalia deck when I missed a paycheck. I don't remember what happened that I missed a paycheck, but I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna make my rent. Let me go sell this Kalia deck. I've sold cards for vacations. I've sold cards for um, a, a a very good Tempur-Pedic mattress. I've... <laughs> I've done a lot. A, a, a worthy investment it as, is. as someone who's extremely picky about good mattresses. Good mattresses, good chairs, good shoes. All three worth the money. Exactly. Yep. So uh, I really, and I, I give advice freely. I say we don't, uh, one of the things that uh, we've always done, whether on this podcast or in the articles, is we always try to make it clear what our our motivation is. And our motivation is, we want to help you save money by playing this game and playing the, the finance side of it. We're not trying to do, like, secretive things and we're not, you know, uh, hiding everything behind a paywall. You'll get access to all this for free eventually, but if you want it right away, we do want you to chip in a nickel here and there. And I just, I'm really appreciative of the fact that I've been writing for, uh, I think, June Mark's... Uh, officially 10 years of writing for me. I'd have to go back and look in the depths of the archives on that. But it's just been a truly delightful time. And now I get to just like post on Twitter, I'm having a cube draft at this event, and people show up and they want a cube draft, which is ridiculously amazing and my favorite way to play Magic. It's it's even better than Commander. I, I'm surprised you haven't gotten into it yet. Oh, if it wasn't for COVID, I would definitely be more into events which would lead to more cubing for sure the uh i mean I've, i own a cube so i have cubed with friends but i always find it uh to be less enjoyable playing with noobs because you just spend a lot of time explaining the game which is fine if it's the, the game plan for the afternoon in its own right well i mean i'll i'll cube at like big events you know you've seen the signs and you haven't even seen the new sign the new sign is awesome it is smaller and led and portable. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> so on my side, it goes back... Well, I mean, first of all, it's probably rooted in the collectability that was inserted into children's toys in the 1980s, right? Like, most of us that grew up in that era... Beanie Babies. Hasbro, 
Hasbro and Mattel were driving. No, no, this is pre Beanie Babies. This is like early '80s, like Star Wars, oh, GI Joe, yeah, Transformers, I was say some GI Joes. Yeah, this is like for people that aren't familiar. Star Wars was so massive, right? And when you bought a Star Wars figure on the back, it showed all the other figures, and they all had a number beside them, and a, I think a little checkbox. Yeah, if everything... it wasn't on the if. If the checkboxes weren't on the back, they were on another an, another document that you could get in some of the boxed uh, vehicle figures or something. And the bottom line was, br- there's nothing more brilliant in children's marketing than putting a checklist in alongside whatever it is you're trying to sell them. Because you're immediately communicating that you're not supposed to just get one, you're supposed to pull a Pokemon and, and got to catch them all, right? Mm-hmm. So, and this is pre-Pokemon. Pokemon's not even a glimmer in anybody's eye at this point. And so I, you know, from the ages of like five to 12, collected toys pretty heavily. And I think a lot of that is rooted in parents like my father, who, you know, these kids grew up in the 50s and 60s, and they were the ones that had baseball cards, hockey cards, basketball cards, and football cards later on, and, you know, had collections. You know, 100 years before that, kids did not have collections of anything. They They were lucky if they had a a circle they could roll down the road. <laughs> right. But from from the sports card era on, you have the advent of collectability. So you take that mindset, and then in my teenage years, didn't collect anything. Like I think from 13 to 17 or so, basically nothing. Just busy with sports and girls and school and whatever. And I think first day of school at University of Toronto at the, like the, the frosh party, got picked up by this super cute goth girl from Hong Kong who was already playing Jihad. Okay. Which was which was the other big game that Wizards of the Coast had out at the time and has been defunct for a long time long now. Long time defunct, yeah. I think it actually had a resurgence at one point and then because Vampire the Masquerade, which is the role-playing game that it was based on, has been going on for a long, long time. And there are vampire conclaves of live-action role-playing all over the world. I may or may not have participated in my more than my fair share of LARPing. Sure. So Jihad was a pretty cool, actually quite a good, like worthwhile to pick up even now, social card game that had commander-esque dynamics right from the get-go because it was a, I think it was played clockwise. Like you were like a vampire clan and you would attack the clan to your left but couldn't attack the next one, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I vaguely remember some of the other games. I remember more of Rage than I do of Jihad. Played some Rage as well, uh, but that was a couple of years later. So anyway, we, we were buying Jihad for, for a few weeks. And I remember one day I went to this, the closest place to get it was a toy store at the local mall. And I'm a student that's just moving around on buses all the time. And went over there to buy some, some Jihad and they were out. And they had revised packs and Fallen Empires packs sitting beside that box. And they were like, hey, have you tried this? It's, it's supposed to be good. And I was like, eh, we're already playing this other game. But I was like, ah, whatever. I came all the way here. There's no internet to check to look anything right. up at this point. Or like we're in the like the very first months of the internet. It's incredibly slow and incredibly boring by comparison to what we have today. So picked up some revised packs. And I think... When does Ice Age come out? Summer of 95 or 96. Let me look real quick. Right. So I think we we stumbled around with some revised decks. Like I think 
of there were six people in our house and i think five of them bought a deck and a couple of packs to go with it and we fooled around with that for most of the year and then i think over the summer we go visit my dad and that's what really blows things up big because my girlfriend takes goes to the mall with him to go pick up some food and she sees ice age uh freshly on a shelf at like a barnes and noble or something and drags him in to to grab some and he's like oh why is this cool and if you know my dad you know what happened next he bought every box they had in the place i was gonna say your dad is worth an episode of the podcast all on his own definitely has the collector mentality that was passed in to the rest of us so he goes and buys a whole bunch of ice age we spend the weekend playing and then he's hooked from there on out and has been ever since i'm hooked from there on out and have been ever since played off and on for the rest of university you know the girl and I break up and and then I switch houses. I become a senior Don, which means I was in charge of a block of houses. And so had a whole bunch of stuff going on and business school got more intense. So for a couple of years, I didn't play as much, but I was drafting at 401 Games, which is a longstanding stalwart of the gaming community here in Toronto, who has made it, you know, props to them. They started out as a convenience store and then transitioned into a gaming shop just because it was making them so much more money. Like they stopped selling cigarettes to sell magic. <laughs> I like that. You, you don't you don't hear that story very much. And they are still around. They're still, you know, the biggest probably the biggest gaming store in the city. So there was lots of action at 401. All sorts of like the old Canadian pros from the late 90s played there like Gabe Sang and at least six or seven people that were had top eight at a pro tour by 2001 or so played in that store and yeah i would i lived downtown in the summer times so i was you know i would go over there two or three times a week as with you and everybody else that was playing magic in the late 90s early 2000s trading was rampant it was if you were a collector of any kind like it just became it was like a reflex to start trading and and collecting and so that went on for a while, but I, you know, the words MGG Finance did not exist at that point. People right. just called it trading, and you know, the the buy list model was already in place at the LGSs. You know, they they pay fifty to seventy percent of what something's worth, and then flip it for full full retail, and and you're just happy to get back to cash if you you need a hamburger or some textbooks or whatever. And I start my first company, things get extremely busy for five years, and I'm still buying Magic product and and playing, like, drafting occasionally, but not really doing much else. And I think it was, like, my late 20s when I started getting more heavily into it, and a lot of it was playing Magic online, playing with my dad when I'd go visit him, and having a couple of friends in town that were more serious about playing like Friday Night Magic and Standard and what have you. This is still pre-EDH, pre-Commander. And I then go through a process where I decide I'm going to start another company, which ends up being Shelf Life. And that's a whole story unto itself. But basically, it was supposed to be a next generation uh, trading platform for collectibles that would also track every collectible ever made. And in the process of researching that, I end up stumbling across mtg price and a bunch of the other mg uh, magic finance sites and start using them just as research so that we can build slides uh for our our elevator pitch um for shelf life and through that process i decide that a lot of the content lacks uh economic vigor 
and that I'm going to go ahead and try my hand at writing a couple of articles uh, for funsies, uh, as most of us did, and and submit them for consideration. So I, I, I hand off uh, a couple of articles at MG Price, and then I think I went to GP New Jersey fall of 2013 and wrote my first big article, which was the one about trading into a Lotus. And wrote for MGG Price for a couple of years. Along the way, I, I, ha- I had done some deals kind of as more of a trying to figure out the templating of the industry more than I intended to do it on a regular basis where I bought and sold a Lotus a couple of times and s- other such things. Bought and, s- and sold some small collections and what have you. And things got really busy with shelf life and it didn't look like I was going to be available to do much more than I already was. But then MCG price went through the period where the owner just had one of the craziest years that could even be imagined that could happen to a human being. You wouldn't, you wouldn't write a movie about it because people would be like, what? That's, that's, that's not a thing. Yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. So the whole thing looked like it was going to fall apart. So I had a choice to make whether I was going to step up and, and take over given my background in e-commerce or, you know, let it fade away and we would all lose our playground. So I stepped up and that's, you know, that's all history. And that's, that's how ProTrader starts. That's how the Discord starts. That's how all the group buys start and all of that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's pretty much my end of the story. And, you know, you and I had been writing alongside each other for a couple of years when that all went down. And it's just been onward and upward since, I guess. I, I agree with onward and upward. I think that the Discord era of MTG Price is... Like I know that Discord took off in a lot of ways. It's been, you know, growing as a as a communication platform, but having the Discord has been a really amazing thing. And you you say in your hauntings that you you frequently haunt the Discord, and we're all on there. And just the power of the groupthink on it is a terrifying thing to behold. If something's going down, somebody in the group will notice. Somebody yes. will notice that quite quickly. Like it's, I've often thought that like writing about finance, uh, magic finance anyway, is about like you find an idea and then you look at cards that either confirm your idea or don't confirm your idea, both of which are valid ways to write about it. It just you have to have more of a narrative structure and you have to build in your research cases. And no, the Discord is just like dump your idea on there see what people think they'll immediate somebody will have a minute to go look at what you're thinking and see if the cards match up and see if the prices look good and then you have stuff like we talked about the surge foil of cage sun last week where uh, we posted the podcast on the discord and within a few hours people were like oh yeah i bought all the ones under ten dollars and somebody's like well i bought them out under 20 so now all the, all the versions are 30 and everybody's slapping each other on the back like good job everyone. And then, Well, I mean the bio the bio potential of that situation is actually the part I am least enthused about because I think that you can very easily uh Well, it's got to resell at you know, that, that price and I was, that's what I was getting to is that Yeah, was, but it, it's that that version of groupthink is like the last thing I would ever trumpet as a benefit. I think actually one of our biggest benefits is that we have a very annoying and very thorough screening process. Because that that actually is what I think has made our Discord the best one in the industry, where it's all adults treating each other well, 
having valid debates and and issuing healthy criticisms and you know comparing options but doing it in a way that is rare to find on the internet in 2023 where people feel as though from years of bad habits they can get away with flippantly insulting somebody or dismissing an idea especially if it if if it is something that is already entrenched as a well understood model so the success of the discord is a function of a bunch of different things but i think that's that's a big part of it i just realized i forgot one of the angles of of my origin story that i wanted to go into a bit my eBay business is quite large now and is running the chance of being larger than what I pay myself in salary <laughs> <laughs> through through my other business at some point in the future. So it's worth reviewing how that part of the business got built. The I actually started selling transformers in 2007. And keep in mind, that's like a 20, despite having mentioned them earlier, that's like at least a 20 or 25 year interval between having them as a kid and starting to sell them in, in my late 20s, having not touched them in almost a generation. The Transformers movie came out. We saw it. And I think for a lot of people that grew up in the 80s, that was a big nostalgia moment, even though the movie wasn't that great. Just seeing you know Optimus Prime on the big screen made a lot of people run out and buy an old Optimus Prime or whatever and find the toys that their parents destroyed or threw out when they, you know, finish their childhood the fact that they got peter cullen to be the voice for all of optimus prime movie for all the transformer the modern ones is just a triumph yeah and keep keep in mind i was the kind of kid who started a bank in grade four where i realized i could with like 15 dollars in a lunchbox i could loan people forgotten lunch money or or money for snacks and and loan shark them for an extra dime or something until the next day and so the entrepreneurial spirit was always there. And when I was in the U.S. where we saw the Transformers movie, visiting my dad in Ohio, we, we jumped into a Target to grab some of the movie toys. And I realized that they were A, cheaper than they were in Canada, and B, there were exclusives in the U.S. that we didn't have in Canada. So I started putting together a business on eBay pretty quickly, just importing toys from the U.S. to Canada. Now, anybody that's that's done both... Uh, between TCGs and toys will quickly tell you that the shipping costs on toys are so much higher because they're so much bigger and they weigh so much more that it's an entirely different business. You have you need much larger margins to make the whole thing work. But there was a the thing that really cemented it as a part of my side hustles was here in Toronto, there was a Walmart super center way out on the west end of town that was very large at one of the largest shopping malls in the country. And they had my buddy was just walking around in there on his lunch break as he worked out on the West End. And he calls me and goes, hey, there's all these Transformers on an end dial display for $10. Hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, ah, well, you know, like thinking that it was the most recent releases that would normally be $10. $10 I was like, ah, it's probably not a big deal. He, so he sends me a couple of pictures on his phone. And I realized that it's Transformers from three or four years ago that are called Alternators. And I looked them up quickly on eBay, and I realized they're going for forty to eighty dollars a piece, depending on which one you have. And they were on the end cap for nine ninety nine Canadian, which is like seven dollars US. So I'm like, uh, "Do you have your credit card with you?" 
He's like, yeah. I'm like, what's your limit? He's like, ah, like five grand or something. And I'm like, can you put that entire end cap on your credit card and I will come meet you? <laughs> like you didn't even want to wait for you to show up and to buy it. You were just like, I'm, I cannot wait the there, however long it would take to get there. There's a really strong Transformer community in Toronto and word gets around real fast when like people snap photos and post them to their own discords and message boards and whatever, like within a couple hours. Cause there's guys that go around scalpers that go around town as is true in the U S of a bunch of different collectible industries looking for stuff on shelves that they can flip. And I knew that there was not going to be time. And so sure enough, he clears out the end dial. I go pick him up. We get it all the way back to my house. It's taking up like a quarter of my living room. This huge, it's like, 20 units by 10 units by like eight units high or something. It's massive. So we put them, there was like six different types. We put them on eBay for prices ranging from 40 to $80. And overnight we sell $4,000. Nice. And I was like, Oh shit, this is going to be big. And I'm like, what did they say to you when you bought them all? They said, Oh, we've got more in the back. We'll put them out in the morning. Well, so, so we go back the next morning and there's a lineup of five other scalpers that are all have like five carts lined up empty, like raring to go at the front door. Guy that unlocks the store for the day has no idea what's going on. He's looking at us <laughs> like we're crazy. There's an actual rush down the aisle to get to these things. And everybody ju- grabs another big chunk and heads home to sell them online. And I think we cleared something like 24 grand, uh, something like 18,000 US in about two weeks on the back of all those. And that's when I was like, okay, eBay's a serious thing. You can actually do this in the collectible sphere. And so by the time it got around to me buying and selling magic cards, I already had that business kind of up and running and it's quadrupled in size since then. But the, the roots were in toys. So do you still do a lot of toys and transformers and whatnot? Almost none. We, we were pre COVID. We had, uh, I had slowed selling online as I started selling more magic cards online in in the like 2012-2013 zone when we faded away from shelf life and I moved back kind of full-time to Advoca. And because the shipping was so much better for magic cards, the impetus to ship anything was just to ship cardboard. But we still did, um, you know, in Toronto we have Fan Expo, which is like the second biggest Comic-Con uh, in North America after San Diego Comic-Con. And there are Transformers-specific shows three or four times a year in the city. So we were doing all of those, and they were usually good for, you know, three to 5,000 on a weekend at a two-day event with a few hundred people walking through. And if you did Fan Expo, that's usually like a $20,000 weekend or something, and you pay 2000 for the table and all your time and effort to set up and tear down and everything. And those are pretty crazy weekends and we were getting pretty burnt out on doing those. Um, and then when it, when COVID hit and we had a kid, it was kind of like, okay, we're, we're just done with all that. And we gave up our very coveted long-term table booking at fan expo. And I'm sure somebody was very excited to get one on the main floor. <laughs> and then uh, COVID uh, uh, happened and online sales just went bananas with magic oh yeah oh yeah and it's funny because i remember travis and i doing a show in the first few weeks of covid where we refused to issue picks because 
we were worried that it would be irresponsible to tell people to buy magic cards thinking that the whole game might collapse. Right. I remember early about that early on in COVID. Nobody knew. And within a few weeks, it was obvious we were way off and that it was going to be like every other recession or major world problem where cigarettes, booze and magic cards all do extremely well. (laughs) All the addictive things. It's not just that. It's the price point and the instant consumability of of products. Like people stop buying cars, houses, and going on major vacations during periods like that, but they they still treat themselves to a booster pack on the way home from work because it's it's not a a functional difference in their overall budget to spend a little bit of money on that stuff. And I'm sure the addictive nature of pack racking doesn't hurt either. It never does. Although I don't open many packs on my own anymore these days, really. I do occasionally, but mostly that's bad value, so I, I stay away from the pack cracking. Your punk butt, on the other hand, uh, if you are not a member of our Discord, you're missing out on this full opening stuff in our sealed openings channel and just making everybody want to uh, stab him repeatedly. I mean, the Russian MH2 boxes I opened last week were pretty crazy. <laughs> Foil, foil Russian Urza Saga, Foil Russian Solitude, and a bunch of other goodies. So, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's our origin stories, folks. If you have uh, follow-up questions and you're in the Discord, feel, to, feel free to pepper us with them. And uh, if you listen to the cast and you want to hit us up on Twitter, feel free. Otherwise, where can people find you online, Cliff? Well, you mentioned Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Word of Commander, as well as my articles every Friday on mtgprice.com. You guys can find me on Twitter at MGGCritic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $9.99 a month. If you want group buy access or $109.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money. Playing Magic the Gathering, did you see that Alexis opened her loot bag group buy from us and got the Lurus serialized and a plateau? Yeah, I, I saw that. <laughs> that was nuts. I didn't know they were going to go so high on the group buy stuff, on the uh, loot bags, but I was super impressed that, because uh, this clearly, this is a model we're going to use again at some point. Oh yeah, loot, loot bags will be done again for sure. Uh, once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Please use the promo code FINANCE5, that's FINANCE with the number 5, during checkout at Cool Stuff, Inc. to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Oh, James, one more week till the debut of Lord of the Rings. We'll have to see when things start getting previewed. Thank you, Cliff, and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MGG Fast Finance, the chase for the battle for the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm.